The following audio is from the Grove Church Marysville campus. For more information about our church or to listen to previous sermons, check out our website at grove.church. Good morning, everybody. Um, if I'm moving a little weird this morning, it's because um, I'm officially an old man. I, uh, I went to put my socks on this morning and my back went out. <laughs> like, what in the world? In fact, the true confession is my wife actually had to put on my second sock because I couldn't do it. Um, but a few hours ago, I'm literally like, I don't know that I can even like show up and speak today because it was so painful. But so if I'm a little stiff and, and not as mobile as I normally am, that's why. And some of you guys are like, good, because you move way too much. So, but... Um, we're in a series called Lights, Camera, Action. Today is part seven, and um, we, as I mentioned before, we've been talking about the activity or the action of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. We've been looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to jump back in today, and the truth is um, we're going to cover about 2,000 years of Christian history today. So you want to probably buckle your seatbelts here for a little bit, um, and we'll get to, we're going to land in Acts 28 and talk about the last couple of verses, but uh, if you sometimes see the end of a movie, um, you might notice, especially with, with films that are a little bit older, at the end of a movie, if you're watching it, it'll say like the end. It'll spell out the script or whatever, the end. But as, to, you know, as, as a little more modern, we don't necessarily do that. And what happens is in some movies, you know, it's the end, but the other time, sometimes a movie will end and, and you don't know that there's going to be a sequel, but all of a sudden there's a part two and you're like, Oh, cool. There's a part two or whatever. Um, and other times you watch a movie and they're putting all kinds of hints in where you're like, yeah, there's definitely going to be like a part two and probably three and five and whatever, and makes me think of like Avengers and the bazillion movies that come out of that. But, um, but how many of you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, so many of you in the room, sometimes there's a debate over the sequel not being as good or, you know, whatever, the first one was better. Um, but as we finish our Lights, Camera, Action series, we're going to take a look at the end of the book of Acts. But before we get there, I want to recap some things, and I want you to understand that we're talking about sequels today, and we'll talk about why in a minute. In the book of Acts last week, we talked about Saul's conversion. He goes from breathing out murderous threats and approving of the killing of Christians to being a follower of Christ and really being one of their all-stars, being a proponent and a preacher of the faith. And it's absolutely amazing. But I want to go over the rest of the book of Acts here just for a few minutes. After his conversion, he preaches boldly in Jerusalem. And it's amazing. And people are astounded and, and freaking out about like, did that really happen? Like for real? And it's incredible. Well, the focus of the first part of the book of Acts is still on the apostles, uh, and in particular, Peter as the main figure in the book of Acts. And so as it goes on, Peter is the central figure. And what he does is, as you move into Acts chapter 10, 11, he takes the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, for many of us in the room, that's like a no-brainer, no big deal. It is what it is. But you got to understand, back in Peter's day, for him to go to the house of a Gentile and preach the gospel and literally see people converted and, and, and filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's amazed, realizing, wow, the message of Jesus is not just for the nation of Israel. The message of Jesus is for everybody. And they all take that very seriously. At first, they're like, Peter, what did you do? Like a shame that he would go to the house of a Gentile and share the gospel. But after he explains what, what happened, it's, it's incredible. And they're like, wow, that must mean that this whole Jesus thing is for 
all people. And so that's a big deal. Well, as, as time goes on, the message spreads from Jerusalem and it starts spreading kind of west and north along the Mediterranean. <clears throat> and, um, and what happens is persecution ramps up. And as persecution ramps up, James, the brother of John, one of the disciples, or as we would say today now, the apostles, uh, James is, is murdered by Herod um, in Acts chapter 12 because persecution is ramping up. Peter is imprisoned, but there's a story of supernatural, a supernatural miracle that he's released from prison, and that's pretty incredible. And then as time, as you get into chapter 13 of Acts, it's Paul and Barnabas, and they go on what we would deem as the first missionary journey. And they travel to areas around the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, and they preach the gospel in the regions of Galatia and all these different areas. And then they go back and report what happens. Okay. So in chapter 13, it's the first missionary journey. When you get to chapter 15, there's a problem that they need to fix. And so they come together in Jerusalem and make a decision. And the problem is this. Hey, the message of Jesus is great and we're free in Christ. Wonderful. But there's individuals called Judaizers and they're trying to attach Old Testament law to the message of Jesus. And they say, you can believe in Jesus and you've got to obey these laws. And they come together and go, that's not true. Let's put a letter out there and help people understand that, that we are literally free from the Old Testament law because Jesus came to fulfill that law. Okay. Now, once you get into chapter 16, it kind of like Peter falls by the wayside a bit and it becomes very much about Paul and now his second missionary journey. In fact, at the end of 15, he goes out with, with Silas, Paul and Silas, and they go on a missionary journey. And this is where when you get to Acts 16, you see the gospel entering into Europe. Historically, you can look at it and go, that's when the gospel began to make its way to Europe, which is a big deal. And we'll talk about that in a minute. As you get to, um, Chapter 18, uh, he's on the second missionary journey, uh, excuse me, his third missionary journey, and he, he, he travels and encourages the churches, and then he goes back to Jerusalem, and in chapter 21 of the book of Acts, he gets arrested. And he's tried, and, and there's this debate about Paul being crazy, and he's talking about Jesus, and what is this, and how is all this happening? Well, he ends up appealing to a higher court, and a higher court, and a higher court, to the point where he finally appeals to Caesar, and he ends up in Rome, and that's really from chapter 21 all the way through chapter 28, that's the rest of the book of Acts. Paul defending the gospel apologetically, talking about from the Old Testament, Jesus being the fulfillment of what the Messiah would be. And it's pretty amazing, but that's the history. And then you get to chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, and it says this, Paul lived for two years in his rented house. He welcomed everyone who came to visit. He urgently presented all matters of the kingdom of God. He explained everything about Jesus Christ. His door was always open. The end. Like, that's it. Like, wait, wait a minute, that's it? Like, hold on, like, what happens after that? Well, the script comes in and it says the end, and they lived happily ever after. But, but that's not it. And this is where oftentimes as followers of Christ, we look at our lives and go, okay, we look at the scriptures and we read the Bible and that's important. 
But then we kind of take this leap from you know, 2,000 years ago all the way to today, and there's this giant gap that we know nothing about. And I want to talk a little bit about this today because I think it's a big deal. What happens is there's another sequel and another sequel and another sequel and another sequel generationally where you can learn about the history of the church. It's not an empty blank slate from the end of the book of Acts in AD you know, 60, you know, 64 all the way to today. No, no, there's all kinds of things that happen. And let me start with this. Let's talk about the disciples, okay? We know in the scriptures that Judas betrayed Jesus, and then he went on to hang himself, okay? James, the one being the brother of John, I mentioned a little bit ago, in Acts chapter 12, was killed for his faith in Christ by Herod. As it goes on, Andrew, the disciple or apostle, went north to Turkey and and modern-day Russia and spread the gospel, and Andrew was crucified for his faith. Thomas, that we often call doubting Thomas, was amazing. And we don't know a lot of this, but you're not aware of this, but here's the deal. Thomas preached in Syria. Thomas went on to India. In fact, the earliest Christians in, in India credit Thomas with being the one who brought the message of Jesus Christ to them. And, and what happened to him is he was speared to death by soldiers. Philip, that we read about in the early part of Acts, Philip went to North Africa, went to Ethiopia, went to Asia, Asia Minor. He did miracles. He preached boldly in the name of Jesus. In fact, he preached so convincingly that a Roman proconsul's wife was converted and his, his, her husband got so mad that he literally tortured Philip to death because of it. And he died for his faith that way. Bartholomew, another disciple, traveled extensively to India, went to Armenia, uh, went to Ethiopia, Arabia, preaching the gospel. And there's varying accounts of how he was killed for his faith, but we know he died for his faith in Christ. James, the other James that was a disciple, um, the Bible says son of Alphaeus, he ministered in Syria before he was stoned and clubbed to death for his faith. Simon the Zealot preached in Persia. He refused to bow before the sun god and was killed for his faith. Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas as a disciple or apostle, was burned to death for his faith. John is the only disciple that was not martyred to death for his faith, but actually they tried to boil him to death in oil. He survived and they exiled him to the island of Patmos where he literally had a vision that we know today as the book of Revelation in the Bible that we still struggle to understand after 2,000 years. But, but it's amazing to look at his life and realize what he was going through when he penned the words of the book of Revelation. And then you get to the main characters of the book of Acts, Peter and, and uh, Paul, and both of them, we know, were martyred in Rome in AD 66. Paul was beheaded and Peter was crucified, but when they were nailing him to a cross, he literally said, turn me upside down because I'm not worthy to die like my Savior. And so he was literally turned upside down and crucified to death for his faith in Christ. Why do we go over all this? Because we get to that point and go, and now it's the end, and now they lived happily ever after? No, 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 that's obviously not the case. But but what, what's going on that we need to understand? And here's what it is, and this is where we move beyond AD 66 into what we would say is kind of the second century, you know, third century, and there were early leaders known as the church fathers, and you might hear names, and you can study these names like Polycarp, Clement, Ignatius, Justin Martyr, who we get the word martyrdom from him. He was a faithful proponent of Christianity and preached about the gospel and died for his faith in Christ. And so when we say somebody's been martyred, that's where that comes from. Origin, 
was another one. Again, these are early church fathers. Okay? As time goes on, persecution gets worse. These individuals were persecuted. Some of them died for their faith. But what happens is Nero comes to power. Nero is an absolute disaster for Christians where Christians are, are burned at the stake. Christians are run through with spears. Christians are fed to wild animals in arenas where people were entertained by this. And, and it was a horrible time in history. Well, Nero was responsible for the burning of Rome, but blamed it on the Christians. And once again, persecution gets even worse, as if it could, but it does, gets even worse. And then a miracle happens. And the message of the gospel continues to spread, even though people are trying to squelch it over and over and over. And a guy named Constantine uh, comes to power, and he does something absolutely amazing. And we might not think anything of it today, because you and I gather in here without any thought of, are we allowed to do this? We worship and there's songs and we go over the scriptures and you might have a Bible with you and you're gonna drive home and in our country, we're allowed to do this. It's okay. But in Constantine's day, what he did in AD 312 was legalize Christianity and say that, that it was legal to worship as a Christian in the empire. And he went on to further the faith by appointing leaders in the church as well as building facilities for Christians to meet in. He had a big impact on the early faith uh, in the 300s. The later church fathers would be names, and maybe you've heard of some of these names like Augustine, Jerome, John Chrysostom was another one, Cyril and Ambrose. They wrote extensively about the faith, and, and they were many of them were martyred, were, were, were killed for their faith in Christ. You begin to get to the early part of the Middle Ages, and Christianity really began to spread really all over. But in particular, historically, you look at Europe, and you see that there are many kings that come to power that profess faith in Christ, and, and missionaries that travel. And you see uh, the, the Germanic people, and, and the you know, Britannica, and Britain, and people from that area, Scotland, come into faith in Christ and taking seriously the work of missions, and they're persecuted, and some of them are killed, but they continue the work of, of spreading the gospel. Charlemagne in the 8th century, 9th centuries, um, Charlemagne opened schools in this era to help people not only understand, you know, being literate, he combated literacy, but he encouraged the study of scripture. You're going to hear 1%, maybe less than that, of church history today. But I'm taking you through this because I want you to understand sequel after sequel after sequel. And what I love is you, you get to, like I said, by the Middle Ages, a thousand years into the Christian faith, you still have people all over as the gospel spreads out for, from India over to Europe. Even now, at some point, not, not yet, but getting to the Americas, it's astounding to see what happened. St. Francis of Assisi was a preacher and encouraged missionary activity. What happens throughout some of this period is heresy begins to rise up, false teaching about Jesus. Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Jesus was spirit only and, and different ideas that, that weren't true at all. And this is where, especially earlier on in the you know, third, fourth, fifth centuries, they began to compile what we have today as we would say it's the canon of scripture. And we'll eventually, I think, do a series on understanding the canon of the Bible and why it is what it is. But they put it together because they wanted everyone to understand there is truth and then there's things that, not, that are not true. And we've got to be careful about that. In fact, once you get to the Middle Ages and they're, they're encouraging literacy, people are, 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 you know, obviously they're wanting to look and study the scriptures. But what happens is in, in uh, the 1300s, John Wycliffe comes on the scene and he was the first one to translate the first Bible into English from Latin. And that's a big deal for us today that we wouldn't think anything of necessarily. 
You get, you get to a period that, that we call the Renaissance. And, and artists like Michelangelo and, and Raphael, some of you just thought they were uh, you know, Ninja Turtles, and they're not. They're, they're real artists from the Renaissance period. But these guys were commissioned to, to paint about faith. And, and some of their work can still be seen today. In fact, a lot of what I'm talking about can be seen firsthand. Heather and I last fall got to go to London for, for a period of time, and we went a few years back before that to London and to Paris. And what I love is when you go to some of those museums, you can see firsthand not only some of the artwork, but some of the writings, some of the early Christian writings and, and how you know the, the Europe's history is a Christ-centered history. It's absolutely amazing. But, but again, we take this and go, well, AD 66 to 2019, there's so much in between that it's important for us to at least understand the overview, which I'm trying to give you. The Reformation came up in, in, in the 1500s in particular. And what happened was in church history, really, you can look at it probably from the 700s on, that the church began to rise in power. But because illiteracy was an issue, what it came down to was the common people trusting church leadership to tell them what they were supposed to do with their faith because they didn't know what it said. And, and when you get to the point of the 1500s, the church became so far off base and there were individuals who were trying to fight for change. But Martin Luther in the Reformation rises up and, and because he's a studier of scripture, realizes through the work of the Holy Spirit in his heart, this deep conviction that the church is missing it because it's up to the popes and bishops and cardinals and, and leaders of the church to tell the people what it says. And they're telling people the wrong things and he had had enough. And that's where you hear the story of a guy like Martin Luther who literally took his 99 theses and nailed them to the door at Wittenberg. And he was excommunicated and persecuted from the church because he wanted to take a stand against things like indulgences, meaning you can pay to sin and get away with it before God if you give it to the church, meaning that if you need to be forgiven for your sins, you could give the church a certain amount of money, or if you didn't have enough money, you could donate your lands and be absolved of your sin. And Martin Luther is like, I've had enough. This is not okay. And he rose up and was deeply heavily persecuted for it. Martin Luther began the Reformation along with other names like John Calvin, Zwingli, Cranmer. They were leaders of the movement. And it challenged the absolute power of church leadership. This is why I always say, read the scriptures yourselves. It's important for you to study scripture, not because I want to manipulate anybody, but because I'm not the final authority. And it's important for you to understand the Bible. If you're literate, I believe you have a responsibility to be a reader and studier of Scripture. The Reformation was a messy, messy period. And you have, by the way, I'm skipping a lot, but you have all kinds of seasons in the church that are black eyes in history. From things like crusades to bad theology to the twisting of Scripture into things it doesn't mean for the sake of the leaders benefiting. And it was a real mess for a long, long time. And it ebbed and flowed and ebbed and flowed. After the Reformation, and again, they, they were, many of them were killed for taking a stand or excommunicated from the community for it. After the Reformation is what we would call in history the Age of Enlightenment. 
And the Age of Enlightenment was a period where science began to be on the uptick and they were looking at things like astronomy and, and into the stars and what's going on out there and looking at anatomy and how our bodies are made in the world and how everything works. And this is where, in a sad period, it began the separation, believing that, well, if you're a believer in science, you can't believe in religion. If you believe in a religion, you can't really believe in science. And by the way, I would challenge anybody, because even today that can be an issue, that those things do not need to be mutually separate that we can understand the amazing nature of who God is and how awesome and big and powerful and amazing God is based on the things that we can study about what he's created. And we don't need to fear that kind of stuff. But, but in the age of enlightenment, it began a separation where if you understood or studied more, you somehow pulled away from, from the Christian faith. And it's a sad indictment, I believe, on our faith. In the 1700s, you have what's, what's labeled in history as the first great awakening, and it was, it happened partially in America and, and in Europe. And it was a time of deep conviction and repentance. It was the first great awakening. And of course, following that, there was a second great awakening in the early 1800s. And in the early 1800s, it once again was this place of coming back to the scriptures and the idea that people had their own Bibles to read and, and access to understanding truth. And, and, and in the second great awakening, this idea, read the scriptures, respond to the work of the spirit in your hearts. And I would say the same thing today, dear Jesus. Let us all do that. And then you have in history what's, what's labeled now as the third great awakening. And it took place, it began in 1906. And some of you are familiar with this. And what I love is being in the lobby between services today. It's been fun to hear people go, hey, my grandpa was part of that. Or, hey, my grandparents were part of this. And, and they did traveling. But in 1906, what happened was the church was gathered in a Christian community in Los Angeles, California, on a place called Azusa Street. And they were praying together and seeking God about his work in their lives. And, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit came so strongly that they were literally, like the book of Acts, cut to the heart. And we're like, God, what do we do? And it was a time of repentance and a move towards holiness, meaning get away from those things that hold you up. Get away from those things that keep you back from becoming what God wants. Let me have that kind of stuff and draw near to me. And, and what happened was through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Azusa Street, individuals heard about what happened. And this outpouring moved throughout the, the U.S., but also up in Canada. Toronto was part of this. There was a movement that came out of Azusa Street and up to Toronto. Part of the movement ended up uh, in the South and Arkansas in particular, is where the history begins to connect directly with you and me today. And what I mean by that is this. A hundred, just over a hundred years ago, individuals in Arkansas were praying together and the Spirit was poured out so powerfully that once again they were cut to the heart. And, and not only were they working and, and, and realizing the power of the Holy Spirit, but a passion for missions. And this is where a hundred, just over a hundred years ago, the denomination called the Assemblies of God came from. And they believed so much in the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to go out and do missions that for the last hundred years, the Assemblies of God has been the largest mission sending agency in the world, all over every continent except Antarctica. Thankfully, I suppose. But, but, but it's this whole idea that, that the, the, the power of the Spirit meant something. And what I love is as that denomination was developed and began to spread and, and missionaries came from Arkansas and, and, and again, you just do the map and you go Tennessee and Missouri and Iowa and, and New York and you know Washington and all that stuff and you can see in, in recorded history little churches and the movement spreading all the way to the Pacific Northwest where 100 years ago right now we celebrated, we're celebrating our, our anniversary in two weeks from now. The Northwest Ministry Network came about 100 years ago. And in two weeks from now, a group of us are actually going to head over to Idaho and we're going to celebrate together 
what God did at the development of the Northwest Ministry Network because of our conviction, not only in the work and empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but our commitment to the mission of God when Jesus said, go make disciples. Now, I bring up, and I have skimmed over, and many of you are aware, I have skimmed over a ton of history. And I'm only giving you a simple overview, and not just the good, but some of the bad and the ugly. But here's what I want you to understand. And I, I, if you do this mathematically from AD 30 all the way to today, and, and, and a generation is about 20 years, then guess what? We're in sequel number about 100 or 101. And what I love is this. This is not the end where I say, hey, congratulations for us on a hundred years as a Northwest Ministry Network of history, but I'm saying, God, what's next? But more than just for me, more than just for Ryan or some of the key leaders here, I'm saying for all of us, you are written into the sequel, but what's your role to play? I'm not sure that Peter or James or John understood that they would have a massive impact in sequels that would continue on and on and on throughout the history of the world. And I don't need to be written about, and you don't need to be written about, but what role are you called to play in the expansion of the gospel that has been going on for 2,000 years? What does it look like for you to invite the Holy Spirit to empower you, to move in your heart, to show you that you're called to be a difference maker just like anyone else? that the the scriptures remind every one of us, and in this series, we've talked about it, that we need the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin, that we need the Holy Spirit to empower us to be a witness, that we need the Holy Spirit to guide us to places where we can be that witness, that we need the Holy Spirit to reveal gifts in our lives, and that we ought to have fruit because we're surrendered to the Holy Spirit, fruit that people can see and realize we're followers of Jesus Christ. We say so much so that you're probably tired of it. What does it look like for you to make a difference in the neighborhood that you live in or apartment complex? What does it look like for you to make a difference in the family God has placed you in? What does it look like for you to make a difference in the circle of friends or or friendships that God has blessed you with? And what does it look like for you to make a difference in whatever place you go to work every day. We're not just here to exist. You're not called to sit on the sidelines and watch a movement and simply go, Pastor Nick, that's awesome. No, 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 no. It's go all of us. It's go make disciples. It's go help people see that the kingdom of Jesus matters, that you are sequel number 100 or 101, depending on your math, and that sequel matters to future generations. Come on, am I the only one in here today? I see you, I just don't hear you very much. What does it look like for you to take seriously, God, what is my role in this situation? What is my place? I've said before, my favorite verses are Philippians 1, 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by death or by life. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That I look at the early church fathers, that I look at the apostles, that I look at these guys, and I don't need to be written about, but I want to be willing to lay my life down and say, I would be willing to die for the cause, but there's times where I think Jesus is reminding us, yeah, but are you willing to live for the cause? See, that's the difference for us. 
We don't just exist. We don't just bide our time until the end and go, here's heaven. We're called to be a part of something amazing. Something that there's a sequel and then a sequel and a sequel. And it will never end until the end of time, whenever that might be. But we're not called to sit back and watch it. We're all called to be a part of it. Father, today, God, I, I, I pray, and again, we invite your Holy Spirit to help us understand that, God, you would have us make a difference. That even on the cusp of, of, of Easter Sunday, where we say, hey, invite a friend, invite someone, that, God, we're not just here going, well, I'll do my church thing. That's great to gather, but it's about gathering so that we can be sharpened, we can be convicted, we can be encouraged, we can be built up to go out into the world that we're a part of wherever we go and help people see Jesus. No matter what we do for a career, no matter where we drive or or what group of people we hang out with this week, God, it's my prayer that we would be so convinced that we need your Holy Spirit, so convinced that the message of Jesus matters. Go make disciples. Tell them about, help people understand. I love them. I've died for them. I rose so I've defeated death so I don't have to fear that. God, I'm grateful that we can bring all kinds of requests to you for you to heal bodies or deliver from addictions. God, we can bring to you burdens we have about our kids when things aren't good or we're just, ah, man, that hurts my heart. God, more than just all the things we can bring to you, what would you do through us? How would you challenge each of us? What would it look like for each of us to be part of kingdom work? That we're all gifted for it. That we all have something to contribute to make a difference in the world we live in. Father, I pray it would be a deep conviction that we live inviting your Holy Spirit to show us. And not just that we would go, thank you, Lord, but that we would be obedient to what you show us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Marysville Sermon Podcast. If you want to keep up with us, like us on Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at grove.church.